Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is Eat Sleep Work Repeat, a podcast about workplace culture, psychology, and life. Hello, how are you doing? I'm Bruce Daisley. I've been really intrigued over the last months and years, reflecting on what we've lost in a post-pandemic era, whether it's because I've witnessed people who work in, in service roles saying that we've seen increasing levels of aggression from people, or whether it's because a lot of workplaces describe not feeling the same. But I'm really intrigued in the, the mechanics of these social interactions. And it's why the discussion with uh, Tracy Camilleri and Robin Dunbar a few episodes ago was of such intrigue to me. And today's guest I think, takes that a degree further. Michael Bannessy, Professor Michael Bannessy, teaches um, at the University of Bristol. But his, his specialism is that he's fixated with the importance of touch in our lives. And look, you know, one of the pieces of evidence he gives along the way in his book is he talks about basketball teams that touch each other more seem to have better results. And, of course, the methodology goes back and ensures that you're not measuring the opposite you're not measuring that when people teams are scoring more they're then subsequently touching each other but rather um that they they assess it in a quite thorough and an intriguing way or he looks at how the way that we're touched as an infant has an impact on our behavioral styles as adults or in fact as we discussed in the interview today how touch seems to be correlated with teenagers showing less aggression and so all of these things that seem innate, innate to humans and seem to be just part of our hardwiring have been, to a large extent, removed from a huge part of our lives. We don't touch friends. We, we don't touch colleagues. And because touch has been so heavily stigmatised by movements like Me Too, rightfully so, touch has sort of been eliminated from proper behaviour. And it's just intriguing because whether touch is a signal of togetherness, whether touch serves a separate role, but an equally important role in other aspects, we seem to have lost something when we don't touch each other. And Michael Bannessy has written this intriguing book that really sort of reflects on the importance of touch, reflects on the propriety of touch and tries to help us make sense of what it means. 
I've really enjoyed it. Michael Banasi, as as you'll hear, has has done a whole load of work that's drawn him into public attention. And his new book, When We Touch, is specifically about these themes. Here's my discussion with Michael Banasi. Michael, I wonder if you could kick us off by just introducing yourself and, and explaining what you do. Yeah, so I'm uh, Professor Michael Banasi, Professor of Psychological Science and the Head of uh, Psychology at the University of Bristol. And I'm also author of a book called When We Touch. And I wonder if, just to kick us off, you could make the case for touching for us, because to some extent... It feels, you know, possibly as a consequence of the pandemic and and a consequence of how modern life is, is evolving in the ap- aftermath of Me Too. It seems like we're moving into an era with less touch than ever before. I wonder if you could make the case for touching. Yeah, of course. I mean, I think um, there's undoubtedly a lot of, um, I, suppose, I suppose, societal considerations around touch at the moment. But we, we need to be mindful in, I guess, all of those that the touch really for me at least, is one of our most underappreciated senses. It's it's with us from birth. It's actually one of the first senses that we use to build bonds that are important throughout our entire life. It can be really important to development and well-being. Um, to give you one example, you know, there's work in, in, in young babies showing that those who experience, you know, more kind of touch in hospitals are likely to be released from hospital earlier. They gain more weight. It might impact on their sleep, for instance. But even adults will benefit from touch. So now more and more data is coming out showing that certain forms of touch, so comforting and caring touches, let's say a hug from a partner or someone holding your hand, these types of things can do things like reduce our stress and anxiety, it can lower blood pressure, can even boost our immune system. So I think there's a range of benefits like that that can play out. And then there's the more subtle factors. Um, so more and more now we, we see data from teams, you know, for instance, professional sports teams, basketball teams and stuff like this that have shown that teams that touch more, um, and this is more like things like fist bumps and high fives, they tend to show greater team cohesion. And actually this has been linked to people winning more games and doing kind of better performances as the season progresses. So there's a range of ways, I suppose, to interpret the case for touch. But, you know, whether it's our health and well-being, whether it's our performance, let's say, in the workplace or with others, um, or whether it's just generally our, our development throughout life, I think touch is with us right from the start through to the very end, playing a really significant role. You raised uh, two, two points that I want to come back to there. And I'll do the sports one first, because I was... I'm a really big tennis fan and um, I saw another case last week of a, a tennis player, a female tennis player, Amanda Anasimova, who'd said that she was taking a break from the sport. She's 21 and she's dealing with the fact that her father passed away when she was 18 uh, um, and he was young. But she she described the sense of feeling isolated and uh, alone when she was anywhere near tennis grounds. And, and the interesting thing is that, you know, sports people like that, individual sports people, there's been studies of golf players, and actually their life is entirely isolated. In fact, the only people they travel with other than one or two coaching staff is their competitors. And so, you know, you never want to be too self-revelatory about your, your challenges to competitors. And so I was yeah. really struck by the juxtaposition between that story I'd read about the tennis player living in a, a world of isolation and the thing that you said about successful teams touching each other more. And it just seemed to be really interesting because, you know, I think we'd recognise that that touch is a, a sort of friendly touch. There's nothing, anything more. I just, 
I'd just love to understand the mechanisms at work there. Why, why does touch seem to activate us so effectively? Yeah, well, I mean, there's, there's different components to that as well. So in a more kind of biological way, um, when we experience, I suppose, the types of touch that bring us together, so those positive touches, um, that can impact um, our, our neurological responses and lead to the release of hormones that are involved in building bonds and trust. So, for instance, if someone um, gently strokes our arm, okay, that might not necessarily happen in a tennis situation, but um, if you if we look at that as the example from the scientific world. Um, those types of behaviours will lead to the release of a hormone called oxytocin. And oxytocin is a, a, a hormone that's involved in bonding. Um, it's involved in calmness, relaxation. So touch can help to facilitate that type of release in a neurological way. Then, of course, I think there's also something significant sometimes. There's a social significance around touch as well. And, of course, we can often, I think, these days move to thinking about some of those examples of the negative components. But even let's take something less negative, like something like a handshake, right? Or, or a high five, right? Those types of things can often be viewed in society as signals of trust and cooperation and connection between us. There's there's work now showing that, you know, people that handshake before negotiations, they're more likely to lean in and talk to each other. They're, they're more likely to meet joint outcomes. So we place a lot of social significance on some of these gestures. So it's a kind of combination, I suppose, of both biologically how touch can impact us um, but also, I suppose, in a more kind of sociological way, what touch can mean in society. And and all of the touches that we have can have these very kind of, I suppose, impact, can be impacted by these social norms around us. I wonder if you could give us, on the basis of that, you, you mentioned handshakes there. I wonder if you, if you could sort of summarise some of the categories of touch. I'm, I'm immediately thinking you talk a little bit about uh, restaurant servers and they it was suggested that they touch people on the shoulder or... Um, I wonder to what extent the forearm as well, touching the forearm has an impact. What are the the ways that you would categorise touch? Yeah, so from a, from a scientific point of view, we we have a few different types. So you've got um, social touch. So yeah, if you're talking about, let's say, touch on someone's shoulder, touch on somebody's forearm, those brief tactile touches, um, we'll call those social touches. And you're absolutely right that those brief touches can have big impacts, right? If, uh, if a restaurant um, server, waiting staff member, just touches you while they give you the bill, you're more likely to give them a larger tip than if um, they didn't touch you, for instance. It's got to be subtle, right? You don't want it to linger. There's a balance in that to to think about. Um, Then you've got something which we call CT touch. So um, this is called CT touch because um, we have a particular type of receptor in our skin, which are called CT afferents. And these are nerves or receptors in our skin that particularly respond to things like slow, gentle stroking. So the kind of speed you might intuitively stroke a baby or somebody that you care about, you find these in your hairy skin. So if you look at your arm at the moment, you've probably got hairy skin on one side. If you turn your palm of the hand over, non-hairy skin. So in our hairy skin, we have these CT tactile afferents, and they're the ones that tend to be linked to a lot of this work around bonding and social connection. Um, They're the ones that can release the hormones in that process. Um, Then you've also got other parts of touch as well, right? So you've got CT touch, which falls under affective touch. So it's an affective form of touch that has an emotional or a pleasurable component to it. But there's other types that have that too, like a hug, right? A hug can bring that emotional component. Um, And then there's the more discriminative aspects. So the type of stuff that we might just do day to day with our hands, trying to detect the differences between a texture or, um, I don't know, 
feeling the difference, how a different book, how a book might feel in our hands versus holding our Kindle while we're reading, for instance. And and what I am really taken with is the sort of the the invisible magic of a lot of this stuff, in the sense that you mentioned there the speed that you might stroke a baby, and you know, I, I don't know how, I don't know the. And how, how many is that? Is that once every three seconds? Or yeah. I think you gave a rate of it. There's, there's something that you said, which is when we stroke a stranger, we often get the speed wrong. And so what I'm intrigued by is how we get this wrong, how we might get the speed wrong with a stranger, but we get it right instinctively with a baby. What factors are at play there? Yeah, so that's something that we're really trying to unpack at the moment, I suppose, is that, that nuance in it, because you're absolutely right. So intuitively we might stroke someone at that kind of that 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 pace that that kind of slow stroking pace that activates these receptors we're more likely to do that with someone we're close to right so a baby or a partner or a loved one than a stranger and we don't know the exact reason why scientifically but to a degree this is where i guess the the complicated nature or the nuanced nature of touch comes in because we know that our social norms and our expectations can have big impacts on how we interpret and how we engage with touch. And I guess instinctively, we might not you know, be surprised to hear that we might stroke a stranger differently to the way we might stroke our partner, because to a degree, it might just feel a bit weird to us to stroke a stranger, you know, frankly. Um, you know, there's something when we don't have that connection or that, especially when, you know, when it's, we're an adult, someone we don't know, I think we bring a whole range of broader kind of environmental factors into it because we're not just thinking about that interaction in that moment, right? There's the future ones. There's a lot of unknowns, you know. Does this person enjoy touch? Don't they enjoy touch? There's a lot of layers to that that probably play a role into it as well. Yeah, and it's the nuance of it. So I think we've just talked before about restaurant servers who touch people subtly on the shoulder or the arm uh, tend to get higher tips and and tend to be um, better regarded by their customers. But if they're instructed to touch customers by staff, it generally misfires. It generally doesn't work. And and we're getting into the whole essence of touch profile and touch preference and how actually to succeed in this you can't just expect to just learn a technique empathy seems to be right at the heart of succeeding in in working this out properly yeah absolutely i mean you can't force it right i think um people are complicated um and as much as you might get a nice finding that shows you one thing in, in reality there's a lot of noise when it comes to how people interact so if you if you if you run a restaurant and you tell your staff touch the customers um it can be uh, actually less likely that they will actually even interact with the customer at all, which is probably the opposite of what you want, right? So, so I think you've got to be careful of that. And, and you're right, there are different personas and different preferences. Um, and those can vary between people. You know, some people might be really avoidant for touch. They might be very much the don't touch me type of character that you might sometimes see caricatured in, in movies and so forth. And then you've also got those who are much more, I suppose, keen to touch, right? That kind of touchy-feely type, those people that seem to thrive on on tactile behaviours. But it's, again, even more complicated than that because even the same person may well vary, okay? So you might get somebody who is particularly touchy-feely, but, you know, I saw this in a study we ran. um, So we ran a study of about um, 40,000 people worldwide, um, which we ran with the BBC. Um, And in that, we had people coming forward saying, yeah, you know, I'm incredibly 
touchy-feely and, and they scored that way in terms of various measures that we can do to confirm it. But they actually were saying, but in some settings, I, I find touch overwhelming. You know, so they right. worked, for instance, as a, in um, massage therapy and they said, well, actually, sometimes at the end of the day, I'm just touched out, right? And I don't right. want my partner to touch me that night when I'm home because I just want, I just want space. And, and to a degree, there's empathy in that, right? I think, you know, you can often hear that, not just with touch, but with other things as well, right? Sometimes if you're in those those jobs where you're having to carry and interact with people a lot, sometimes at the end of the day, you just want to step away. So there's there's nuance to it. And from that BBC survey, that, that survey, around 40,000 people, I think you said, um, yeah. one of the things that seemed to come out of it is that people felt that they were touch-starved. They felt an absence of touch in their life. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, we call this touch hunger. Um, and it's it's a really uh, worrying trend, I think, actually. So in our survey, we had 54% of people across the worldwide sample. So we had 112 countries involved. Um, 54% of people well, across the sample said that um, they didn't feel they were getting enough touch in their life. Um that compares to about four percent of people who felt they had too much touch in their lives. Um, so, so quite a quite a distinct difference there. We weren't the only ones to show that um, work done, admittedly during the pandemic, but um, but it was still still relevant today. I think found that eighty percent of people were reporting they weren't getting enough touch in their lives. Um, and even before those dates, so back in 2014, 2015, there was work coming out from the US. This was slightly more to do with affection rather than touch, but it was actually talking about do people feel they don't get enough affectionate touch and affection in their lives? And around 75% of Americans agreed, Americans um, agreed with the statement that America is in a state of affection hunger. Like everyone's, they're not having enough affection or affectionate touch. So it's been there for a while. The reason it matters is because the consequences of it can be quite serious, really. So um, being more touch hungry has been connected to being more lonely. Um, it has impacts on things like depression and anxiety. There's relationships with those. Um, and all of these things obviously then have knock-on consequences as well, right? So you can think about the, the cycle that builds from it. So increasingly, there's, a, I guess, a greater focus now on how can we, I suppose, help people bring the touch to their lives that they might be missing, that they they want. And, and that's the key part in this is what they want, right? Because you might be someone that has lots of touch in your life, but it may not align with your own desires. You might be someone who doesn't want much touch at all, but you're still not getting it. So there's a nuance in that as well. And it raises really interesting questions. To some extent, can we train ourselves to touch more? You know, one of the things I think you mentioned was the this state of relationships, the health of relationships, often touch plays a part in relationships feeling more connected. Touch and kissing, I think, specifically, so it seemed to um, indicate relationship strength. If you feel that you've got an absence of these things, can you train yourself to do more? Should you lead the way? What advice do you give to people in, certainly in their, in their French, should we touch our friends more? What, what advice would you suggest within, with all the caveats you've given? Yeah, well, I think I think there's different layers to that, right? So I think the first the first step is actually just to ask ourselves what what do we want in terms of our touch our touch preferences, and I think we do have to be careful to not automatically map our preferences onto others. So I think there's a case of if if let's say I'm someone who desires more touch in my life, then I think it's about then okay, better understanding what does that look like and exploring that a bit for me. Well, what types of touch am I looking for? How am I looking for that? Um, then I think it's about 
perhaps actually trying to voice that more. So trying to actually talk to others about that and share that because sometimes modeling that behavior outwards, either verbally sharing it or trying to show that behavior to others is a way to receive it back in. But then, of course, we have to recognize that people won't necessarily always reciprocate, right? We're, we're asking, we're not demanding um, because we, we have to recognize some people won't want to touch us all the time. Like they, they may have a persona where they just don't want to engage with that. And I think in that sense, it's it's about, you know, obviously thinking, well, where else can touch come from? And I think it's really important to recognize that we can get social support in a variety of ways, right? It doesn't just have to be touch. And we can get social support from a variety of people. So let's say you have a partner who's not necessarily a romantic partner. It's not necessarily overly tactile, but you're looking for, I don't know, those hugs. Maybe they could come from a friend. Maybe they could come from a family member, for instance. Um, there are also options you could take, like trying to explore substitutes, right, for touch in your life. And some people do that. Some people turn to technology. Um, you know, others turn to doing even things like joining kind of like gardening and stuff like this because you yourself are engaging in touching objects and, and feeling the texture. So you're bringing touch into your life. Um, admittedly, it might not be that hug that you want, but but it's given you an, an opportunity to engage with touch. And if you're someone who maybe doesn't have those social connections around you, if you're doing those types of activities as a community garden, you might then build those connections with others. So there's a number of different ways you can think about that. Yeah, I, I, you mentioned technology there. I did look up, I, I did see where whether anyone was selling the calming cushion that you mentioned. The, how does the calming yeah. cushion work? Something <laughs> that you hug to you and it's got a... Yeah, yeah, it's the carbon cushion. So it's um yeah, it's not for sale at the moment. It's um it's a current prototype that we've got actually in the labs okay. in Bristol. Um, yeah, I, so, I was looking for it on um, Amazon, thinking I wonder how much that'd be. Yeah, yeah, I, I've 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 been trying to 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 bring one home the whole time I've been in Bristol, but I'm not allowed. So talk through the principle of it. Yeah, so so in essence, the um the carbon cushion is a is a cushion that um. People hold and effectively, to a degree, I suppose it kind of breathes, right? It kind of moves in and out. And and there's a kind of tactile component to that and you're feeling the pressure on your body. And what's been shown is that if you trigger that, the breathing rate, so the rate at which the cushion moves and, the, and that kind of feel that goes with it, if you do that at like a slow kind of heart rate speed, that can actually lower people's anxiety during stressful situations. Wow. Um so that's been shown, particularly with students in the university setting. Wow. Um, but of course, it's, it's not just the cushions that do this, I should say. So there's even there's work now even with watches showing this. So people have taken the wearable watches on people's wrists and they just vibrate at that very slow, gentle heartbeat frequency. And again, that can lower anxiety during stressful situations. So you can use touch in very subtle ways, right? You may not be thinking about that buzzing on your, your wrist, very gentle buzzing, but, but it could be used as a way to actually bring you down. And people call this haptic wellness. I think it's going to be one of the biggest trends that we'll see moving forward um, over the years ahead because, you know, increasingly people are looking to technology for how can technology support touch in our lives, um, you know, also in workplace settings, right? Because as we move to more and more virtual interactions, those themselves bring challenges, right? So we mentioned, you know, about handshakes being a really important workplace behavior. It helps build connections often between people, build trust. Well, how does that happen when we're online? How do we bring all of that in? So actually 
well before the pandemic, you know, early 2000s onwards, there have been companies developing these kind of apps and technologies that can allow you to share handshakes at a distance through um, haptic technology. So there's there's work like this that I think we'll see more and more. Absolutely. When I read about the calming cushion, I, I know a couple of people I was thinking of who live alone. And I was immediately thinking, oh, I wonder, I was just so intrigued. So, you know, I love the fact it's in prototyping and development, but um, I can I can most definitely see a need for it. Yeah, no, I think it's great. And, and like I said, I mean, and I think even now, if, if you are someone in, that, in a situation where you're thinking about someone who is isolated and you want to somehow share t- touch with them, I mean, even if you can't get a calming cushion in your in your life, I mean, like I say, there are there are tools out there. There are kind of these kind of wrist, a lot of them are wrist based. Yeah. yeah, But they, they allow you to like send a tactile signal to others. I mean, there's also things like hugging shirts now, so you can, you can send a virtual hug to someone um, and they'll, they'll, they'll hopefully feel it. And we don't know if it carries the same benefits, right? I mentioned earlier that, you know, people who, for instance, hug more may show benefits in terms of their health and their well-being. We know that for physical hugs, we know that whether it's somebody hugging you or even if you hug yourself, we know some of these things can play out. But we don't necessarily know what if you wear like a piece of tech that gives you it. In principle, it should or it might, because the reason why these types of things appear to have benefits are because they show us social support. They show us that somebody cares. So if someone's sending you a hug, hopefully that gives you that same signal but we don't know yet in terms of the science. You briefly touched on the the bit um, right at the start, and it was one of the questions that I was going to come back to, which was about the profile of whether babies are touched at birth and how that can be directly measured on their behavioural styles and, and uh, approaches to life into their second, third, fourth decade of life. And I was just intrigued with the details of that so if someone is finding that they are touch averse there could be some origin of that in their childhood and and is is that right well yeah but i mean our our early tactile experiences can have a a big impact right they they shape a lot of our norms and our expectations um for good and for bad um you know and so um it is it's it's fair to say that you know one one example of this is actually um there's some work showing that people with more conservative values, you know, that can kind of pass on generationally and um, people with more conservative values might feel slightly more kind of, I suppose, negative about touch in some context, right? And so some of that does does carry forwards. Um, and yeah, so, so in that sense, there is there is that link. There's that kind of early life link. Um, there's other ways as well. I mean, you, you may well naturally... Be come from a very kind of tactile family, but there may be a particular experience, right, that acts as a trigger for you. So we shouldn't lose sight of that as well, which is is less about what's passed on generationally, but also the fact that our our early life can shape that. These early tactile interactions really do matter, though. Um, I mean, I think if we talk about this in the book, there was there was one study looking at how touch, you know, I think it was it was very much in those kind of first that kind of first year of life, so that kind of infancy, touch during infancy, and they. They looked at how often, um, I suppose, these infants, they were premature infants and they were either touched um, by their parents, so they, they had the tactile interaction or they didn't have touch, or there was also a group of infants who weren't born premature and they just had, you know, a kind of typical tactile interaction as well. Um, they then tracked these kids for 20 years um, and they they looked at how that there's those early touches, what impact did that have on their lives? And what they found was that... Um, as these children developed, those that were, I suppose, touched more 
um, in the early life, they had more kind of social synchrony in their interactions with their their parents and uh, with their caregivers. Um, and as they got to their adult life in their twenties, they they showed differences in their empathy towards other people. So in this particular study, they used brain imaging and they looked at empathy towards strangers and the infants that were born premature and that were cared for still with some tactile comfort, right? So they could be stroked, for instance. Um, they tended to show kind of greater levels of empathy than those that were born premature and weren't given that tactile component early on. So touch can have really powerful impacts from our very earliest days without us thinking. Through, through all of this, you've made such a powerful case for, for what touch can bring when it's appropriate and when it's welcomed. And I guess it's an important consideration to have that to some extent, touch has been increasingly regarded as an inappropriate part of the workplace. Whether that is stories of bosses introducing special yeah. hugs. Um, I think I used to work at Google and shortly after I left Google, they uh, I think they told employees that they shouldn't hug each other. And it and it's it's an area yeah. where you'd have never expected prohibitions to sit in company policies. But now it's it's not unusual for, for that to happen. I just I just wonder what your perspective of touch in the workplace yeah. is and and how should we think about navigating it? Because obviously in the examples that you've given, whether it's Jurgen Klopp hugging his players or whether it's, you know, uh, basketball teams touching each other or tennis <laughs> players fist bumping each other, we, we witness touch in appropriate settings all the time in, in workplaces. But when it comes to our jobs, is there a, an appropriate amount of touch or how should we even think about navigating it? Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I think you, you raise a really important point, right? I mean, there's been many examples where people have abused their licence to touch, um, and particularly in the workplace. And when we talk about touch at work, I think a lot of our mind can steer towards that these days. Um, absolutely, those types of behaviours we don't want to see. But I do think there are some workplace tactile behaviours that we might, be open to seeing. And, and in fact, I think we do see them, right? So handshakes, you know, a high five, maybe those types of things we feel a bit more comfortable with a fist bump. Um, some some occupations, that's a really common part of, of greeting, right? Um, and, and I think there's a risk sometimes when it comes to workplace touch that because of all of the, I suppose, those very extreme negative examples, we could sometimes run the risk of if we do you want to throw out all aspects of touch and just say right we're just going to put a complete prohibition on it or should we maybe kind of or is there more nuance to it really right is it is it is it a world where there should be no one touching anyone else or actually a world where some types of touches could play a role and of course that raises the question of which types of touches and um, I'll explain that in a minute but, but 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 before we talk about that I think the key is to actually ask well why would we even want touch at work, right? Because, because okay, if if you say, well, maybe there's some touches that are okay, are the benefits worth it, you could ask. And, and to a degree, I think they might be, actually, because some of those touches, um, you know, there's work showing that touch can be a really important cue to share empathy, to show gratitude. Um, touch can be a really important cue to build trust, to build cooperation. So, could those types of touches, like those handshakes, could they could they play a role? Could could someone pat you on the shoulder? Could that be a good a good thing? And I think there's some cases where it might be beneficial, but it's it's nuanced again. 
Um, and I think one of those those factors is anyone, I'm sure all of us can recognise, when we manage different teams and work with different people, the people in front of us will all vary. There'll be some people that will actually really probably need that pat on the shoulder. There'll be some people who won't want that at all. And I think what we need to probably move towards personally is a space where we're actually engaging in conversations about what does touch mean at work, where it is and isn't it appropriate at work, rather than a blanket, let's rule it out completely. Um, you know, and I, I just because there are benefits. But does part of you, seeing the benefits of this, think that maybe we've become excessively sensitive to, to touch? You know, the, as you're describing it there, I, as you're describing someone getting a pat on the shoulder, I can physically see some people recoiling from that experience. And look, you know, without being critical or judgmental on it, have we become too censorious of benign touch? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, that's a really good question, right? And I think that's, um, I think that's one that often it, it's, it's helpful, I think, sometimes when we're casting what might be a problem to actually stop and ask, well, why is this a problem, right? And I, I think this is, um, you know, actually try and explore that question, well, why is it a problem? Why is it this? Why is it that? And maybe there are some parts of touch that aren't necessarily problematic, right? And maybe for those, we don't need to be so sensitive. On, on the broader note, though, do I think we need to be sensitive about touch if with other forms? Well, yes. So I, I kind of, I suppose I'm sitting on the fence a bit with my answer because I think it's too simple to say we've become too sensitive about touch as a whole because touch, there's so many different types of touch and there's so many different layers to that component of it that I think we almost need to break that down a bit and say well right. let's look at okay let's look at hugging in the workplace have we become too sensitive to that well actually I think that one's that one's that one's probably a really difficult one to unpack right because would we is it appropriate for you know people to hug for a boss to hug a subordinate in the workplace given the power differences given all these dynamics I'm not sure we're too sensitive there I think it's really Good that we're we're looking at that, but agreed. But what if we were looking at, let's say, yeah, let's just say, you know, a pat a pat on the shoulder. Is that is that a problem in the same way as a hug? And I think we need mm. to become much more nuanced and ask those questions because my worry right now is I think increasingly I see spaces where people won't engage in the conversation at all, and I think when you don't engage in the conversation like that, then the differences grow, right? Then the differences become more pronounced and I think that becomes more problematic. I think we almost want cultures in the workplace where we can engage in talking about our differences and our different perspectives. And I think touch does fall into that. And I think that's that's the way we need to think about it. Yeah, that's why, look, it's such a fascinating discussion, isn't it? Because I guess at the heart of most of what you've said is that subconsciously and really emotionally, touch often signifies it's significance it it signifies connection and if people yeah. are not welcoming that connection or avoidant of it then forcing connection on people might feel inappropriate but equally um a notion where we we go to the extremes and say look you know if someone's in a moment of sadness touching them on their forearm or their the top of their arm is that inappropriate it's like it would be horrible if we dehumanised work to the extent that we weren't allowed to do those things. Exactly, and I, and I think that's the risk, right? That's that's the risk. I mean, to give you an example, which is a very specific one, but it, it really struck me when I was writing the book, and it, um, 
actually came across a case of a school in America whereby um, there were two students that got in a fight and um, there was a suspension afterwards, right? Which I thought, I thought, well, that makes sense. Two, two kids had a fight. They got suspended. Um, the reason they got suspended was because one of the kids hugged the teacher afterwards. So it wasn't for fighting. It was for the hugging, right? And you're like, ooh, okay, is that a step? <laughs> you know, where, where have we gone with this, right? Because there's a scale in that of actually, like you're saying, maybe there's scenarios where comfort and the context needs to be factored in. Um, and I think, yeah, your example of, yeah, let's say someone's really struggling in the workplace and you, you put an arm on their shoulder. And I'm sure we probably all second guess it mm. a bit now. We, we, we try and judge, should we yeah. do that, right? Um, but I think, you know, do we want to completely rule that out of our interactions? That would be such a difficult thing because in those types of scenarios, you know, touch is often our preferred nonverbal cue, right? We, we turn to touch to, it's a really great way to show emotional sincerity, it's a really great way to show sympathy and compassion. We prefer it over other nonverbal cues to emotion. So if we suddenly take that away in those types of settings, it's it's a really really challenging situation. Absolutely, and I was dealing, with, I was working with a retail store a few weeks ago, and they were reflecting something I've heard from from hospitals to other retail stores that since the pandemic. Um, the aggression they've been witnessing in stores is being unprecedented, and what you can't help yeah. but feel is at times that this aggression that people are projecting at, at service staff is a reflection of isolation and disconnection. And so there's times where you think, man, this is like, this is an expression of people feeling isolated, touch hungry, cut off from the world, not recognizing the humanity and others around them. And so it feels like the world needs more touch for me or more connection. And yet we're moving into a space where we're second guessing and judging whether it's even appropriate. Yeah, and, and I mean, you might, on that, I mean, you always have to be careful to draw, um, I suppose, how you draw inferences from correlation and not infer causation. But there, there is work, actually, um, in um, going back to, yeah, from the kind of, I suppose, 1950s onwards, actually looking at the relationship between lack of touch and aggression. Um, and actually, um, there is work, you know, potentially showing some links between engaging in, in less touch and actually showing more aggressive behaviours. That's been seen in American teenagers. That's been seen across different cultures worldwide where it's actually the other way, where it was more positive tactile interactions were connected to less aggressive behaviours. But the message is similar, right? Wow. I mean, it, it demonstrates that sometimes the lack of system thinking, the lack of sort of linking all these things up, the the, yeah. the idea that by compartmentalizing and doing what is the lowest risk approach in each area misses the substance that sits between those areas. Yeah, and I think that's and that's the key. Often, I think of actually really just just trying to sit down and explore the problem, right? And I think you know sometimes just taking that step back and just exploring. Okay, so what is the problem here? Why is this a problem? Is this a problem? Mm. And trying to unpack that nuance is, is always a really good step to start from. At least, you know, if you're trying to think about how do we design a policy for a workplace environment around touch, right? Is it the easy answer is just to say, well, no touch. <laughs> um, it's a very simple um, but way to look at it. But then you have to think about, well, what do you lose by doing that? And so then perhaps you go and watch more nuanced and, well, why is this why is this one a problem? Why is this a problem? And, and try and unpack that um, and prepare yourself in the best possible situation. Look, I mean, what I've, I've loved about the discussion uh, as we sort of wrap up, but it, look, it's an immensely nuanced thing and understanding it more 
poses more questions rather than answers. Uh, but it's it's so fascinating. As you've done these surveys, you've taken it out. As you've talked about this, has anything surprised you? Is there any big international differences that maybe you weren't aware of previously? What have you learned? To be honest, what what surprised me the most was the international similarities. Um, believe it okay. or not, so so. Absolutely, there are differences. And I've, we've spoke throughout this interview about differences, right? Many differences and many nuances. Um, but, um, you know, and I'm sure we can think of different cultures worldwide that may tu- we may think touch more often than others. And, but at the heart of it, in our survey, we, you know, we asked a very simple question to people as one of the, one of the questions in it, which was, what, what three words would you use to describe what touch means to you? And, and there were three words that were just consistent pretty much worldwide around things like comfort, connection, care, you know, other words were like warmth, love, support. But that to me was actually, it's a really simple question, right? But I think it's really telling that mm. consistently around the world, people kept coming back to saying, well, that's what touch means at its heart. That is what touch means to us. Um, I've asked that to people before the pandemic, after the pandemic, you still see that consistency come out. There was also work in our study looking at things about like what's appropriate and inappropriate when it comes to touch. And again, we saw remarkable consistency around the world in what people thought about that and one of the big things that impacted that every time was how the emotional bonds interacted. So how close we felt to people impacted what was appropriate or not appropriate. And so, so I think we can often perhaps sometimes overcomplicate touch as well, right? We can think there are these massive differences between us, but at its core, we, we really think about touch as this sense that brings us together. Um, and for me, that's insightful because actually in our bigger mix about what does touch mean in society today, there is a risk sometimes we lose sight of that factor, right? We lose sight of the fact that touch is a sense that we often, you know, mainly yeah. when it's appropriate, we think it brings us together. So just stopping touch, which we seem to have done in certain spaces, is that the best way to go? You know, I would argue perhaps not. It needs to get much more nuanced than that. And that, that to me is a key finding. I love it. I'm so, so struck by how we've kind of eliminated, removed, reduced the amount we touch and, and, very evidently, it's got so much to be said for it. So um, thank you so much. I've, I've loved the conversation today, Michael. Pleasure. No, thanks for having me. Really nice to chat with you. And the book is called, in the in the UK, it's called? In the UK, it's called When We Touch. Uh, and in the US, it's called Touch Matters. What made them change the title for the US? Yeah, I, I've still not been able to be, I've never been told. I think, I, think, I think just in general, my editor preferred Touch Matters to When We Touch. I think, um, yeah, it was it was always originally When We Touch, in truth. But um, yeah, I think um, perhaps they, they preferred more direct, like Touch Matters. It's, it's a very, very clear, direct title, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. I've loved talk, talking Thanks to you. Thanks very much. Thank you to Michael. Appreciate that discussion. I'd, I'd love to know what you people think. Is it inappropriate to ever think about touching a colleague's shoulder or arm? Should we not even think about that? Even aside from that, um, touch clearly has an important part to play in our relationships and friendships. Fascinating discussion. Really appreciate all of the, the feedback that everyone uh, gets in touch and sends. As ever, the best place to stay in touch with what's happening on the podcast is the newsletter, and you can find that by going to the website eatsleepworkrepeat.com. I've been Bruce Daisley. Thank you for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.